Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Nineteenth of November, Friday. The ash tree held its breath as the moon grazed the darkness between cirrus sandbanks in a halo of light. A handful of stars, misplaced, constellationless, breadcrumbs no longer able to lead me home. And now, the dawn rises, ochre and mauve. The larches stand tall on the horizon. Thank God for sunrise and November buds. After all the dramas from last week, we're back in our proper spot, nestling into the heart of the night. So this is the Narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting to you, Canal Side. Earlier, the night fell with a breathless stillness, and chimney smoke rose vertically into the gathering owl light, and the moon is on the wane, and the temperatures are beginning to drop as a weather front swings down across the country, bringing in a lot colder air. But the stoves are on, and we are warm, and I'm glad you could come. Welcome aboard. This past week, autumn has seemed to be gathering its pace, and almost in the space of just about four or five days, the leaves of the old oak at the top of the hill and the ashes beside the canal here have dried and browned and almost all have now fallen, and their rounded summer forms have been transformed into the tangled skeletal lacework of limbs. Fused arthritic knuckles, black against the grey November winds. And now the skies whirl with jackdaw dance and clatter with the laughter of magpies. Pairs and small flights of ducks fly low, quacking and chuckling as they purposefully arc through the skies, their flight paths crisscrossing, mapping out complicated flight plans and routes, perhaps only meaningful to them. And the cormorant has been back, its profile half-goose-like, half-medieval dagger etched against the clouds, but it's yet to be a regular visitor to the ash beside us. And a pair of swans have taken interest in our waters. Our local family vigilantly repel their advances the pen, the female, leading the attack. Sometimes the cob, the, the dad, will join her as a backup, but usually the pen's warning signals and the low flight wingtips skimming the water is enough. Junior always sticks close to dad. 
the arrival of this new pair cause concerns not just from the threat that they pose to the territory of our little family, but also possibility of carrying avian flu, which has attacked the swans further south so, so viciously. But so far, things seem to be okay. I've yet still to see if Cyril can fly, but the underside of his or her wings are so dazzlingly bright almost as if they've been bolted on from another bird. Poor Penny's had a rough couple of days this week. She suddenly developed a severe limp, and I can only think that she must have pulled a muscle or strained it somehow. And the trouble is that at her age, there's always this tendency to imagine the worst. And one night in particular... She was in obvious discomfort and didn't even want to go up and meet Donna on her way home from work. And in fact, just lay on this nest of bedding that she'd made and just lifted her head when Donna came in. So there's a a restless night or two. But by the morning she's now mobilising again and seems to be quite fine and there's a little bit of a limp still, but she's back to her perky self. And it's now that time of year for putting winter plans into operation, and so there's quite a bit of movement on the canal. And it's lovely to meet up again with Jackie and Pete and their dog little Pippa on the Lena Kelly. Even though on the first night here, poor Pippa, who's now getting quite elderly and with failing hearing and sight, fell into the canal, and Jackie, bless her, had to go in in the dazzle of torchlight to get her out. A real hero, Jackie. I'm sorry also to see Pete and his family go off on Dacha to their new moorings. And I know Penny will miss Sooty and Tess, as I will. I'll also miss you as well, Pete, but we'll meet up again, I know. You're not too far away. And such is the nature of boat life. I've really appreciated all your comments and postings on social media and please keep them coming. And if you want to contact me, please, please feel free to do so. The contact details are in the program notes below. And I just want to say particularly to you, Nancy, that you're right. And I totally can understand you need to be resilient for these types of procedures. And so take your time. And sometimes it can just feel that where we are is that we're just being hit by wave after wave of problems and troubles and what would normally just be a challenge that we would naturally just rise to can become those nagging worries and fears that smolder and fester through our wakeful nights and Till we just feel overwhelmed by them. And I think many people at this time feel that lack of resilience or that they've run out of resilience. It will come back and I know you will make the right decision. You've gone through a lot 
So it's not surprising that at this moment you feel a bit worn down and not in a position to cope with these things. But you will do. And hello and thank you to a new listener, Poonam Kakata. Is that how you pronounce your name? Thank you so much for your kind words and for your retweet. I really do appreciate it. And while we're all here, I just want to say that I'm not too sure whether I'm going to be able to do a podcast next week. I've got my COVID booster chap on the weekend and I know it really knocked on her out. She was out for about five or six days and had a very, very strong reaction to it. And everybody I've been talking to said that they've just, for at least a couple of days, they've just been knocked out. So I'm hoping and planning to still be able to do a podcast. But if there isn't one, then I apologise. I'm okay. There's nothing wrong. I'm just having the side effects or working through the side effects of the, the booster jab. If you go under Bridge 57, the canal runs through a small cutting, and most times it's quite overgrown with hawthorn and blackthorn. The approach from the other side feels a little blind, but this way the way ahead is clear as the boat nuzzles between the red brick sides with little more than an inch on each side. That is, if you have set her upright. It's not as tight as the next bridge, Bridge 58, by Beardlow Cottage, which has been repaired so many times from being knocked that the protective additional skins of concrete are barely more than the seven-foot width of the boat. The bridge is at a very slight angle, too slight to really notice it unless, of course, you're steering your boat under it. A little pressure on the tiller to edge the bow to the right will ease the stern from clipping the right-hand wall. The canal then swings round on a long right-hand bend that, at times, is quite acute. And a hedge, some sparse woodland and fields stretch out to our left, the towpath side. But on our right, the bank is steep and high and thick with undergrowth. And at this time of year, it's bright with hips and whores, and the midnight dark slows. It fidgets and trembles with bird calls, sharp cheeps and short whistling blasts as clear as glass. Avian jungle drums, announcing our presence. And over in the west, the liquid mewling of buzzards, circling black dots, riding the high autumnal thermals. As the bend is completed, we pass a winding hole, a large V-shaped notch cut into the offside bank, where long narrow boats like us can turn around. And boats up to 70 feet long can theoretically use this one. However, it's notoriously shallow and it's so easy for the bow to run aground. Last year I came across on two different occasions boats stuck here necessitating the use of that proverbially famous barge pole 
to ease them off the silted mud. The problem is that because of its reputation, few boats use it, which in turn means that the silt gets even worse through lack of use. The winding hole is situated on a left-hand bend, after which the bank on the right loses its steepness and gives way to slow, gentle rise of meadows. On the left, the woods get a little denser. It's not quite a wood, it's more woodish than wood. But the air has that softness and sweetness that you get beneath a canopy of trees. And this is where I want to bring you. An open stretch of canal just before Bridge 58 that is just tucked out of sight as the dark, torpy grey waters curve gently to the right. See, here, on the hedge line that borders the towpath, cobweb soft, spun wispy veils of traveller's joy. Its feathery smoke misting the contours of the hedge, softening it with a haze of silver and barley. For much of the autumn and well into the winter, those whiskery seeds will cover the hedges. And at the heart of each seed head, an ochre star, glowing almost yellow in some lights and russet in others, as if the golden light of summer were captured and wrapped in an extravagant cobweb thistle down of early autumn mist. And that soft, fluffy down. It's like warm snow. It's whirls of loose helical spirals, like those wild, uncontainable stars of Van Gogh's starry night, softly burning in the brown and green universe of a Warwickshire hedgerow. Where it's still damp from the morning dew and last night's rain, it's matted together in little tawny clumps like wet kitten fur. And I'm so happy to live in a world or a landscape that has within it a plant called Traveller's Joy. Just saying the name can relax the face and warm the spirit. Who could resist an invitation to walk the paths and the commons that were bordered by Traveller's Joy? And even if we were told that a beautiful wild rose or a rare orchid was growing there, I bet it would be traveller's joy that would fill our imaginations, and it'd be traveller's joy that we would look out for first. And it's traveller's joy, coincidentally, that is the very first plant featured in the concise British flora in colour by the Reverend William Kebble Martin. But with the precise vision of a botanist, he simply writes, Clematis vitalba, Latin, traveller's joy. Stems rope-like, climbing by twisted leaf stalks. Flowers greenish. Fruit feathery. Mostly on calcareous and alluvial soils in South England, rarer and mainly introduced in North. Flowers, July. 
One of its other official names is Wild Clematis, but I'm so glad Wild Clematis didn't catch on, and we still refer to it as Traveller's Joy. And there are also so many other local names for it. Up and down our lanes and hedgeways, Drovers, tracks and hollowways, many now fading out of living memory. But Roy Vickery's collection of traditional local names include Bedwine, Honesty, Virgin's Bower, Beerbine, Bedwind, Beggar Brushes, Bellywind, Bethwind. Beth Wine, Binder, Blind Man's Buff, Bushy Beards, By the Wind, Climbers, Crocodile, Daddy Man's Beard, Daddy's Whiskers, Devil's Guts. Father Robin Wall Kimmerer is right. Our language does matter. Words personify or objectify. John Moriarty is right. The names we give things do frame the way we meet things. Grandfather's whiskers. Grandfather's beard. Grey beard. Hag rope. Halfwood. Hedge feathers. Jewel guts. Love entangled. Maiden hair. Old man. Old man's beard. Old man's wizard. Poor man's friend. And of course, like all things that are rooted in the distant past and local memories, there's debate about why it came to be called Traveller's Joy. It's been argued that this shady shrub with the sweetly vanilla-scented flowers that attracts pollinators and is loved by goldfinches as well as an important food source for so many moths offers welcome respite with its shady roadside trackway sweet-scented bowers on hot summer days. And Niall Coitier notes that one tradition claims that it gets its name from having sheltered perhaps three of the most famous travellers, at least within Christian tradition, the Holy Family, on their flight from Bethlehem into Egypt, and also suggesting the reason for its alternative name, Ladies Bower. However, Richard Folkard argues that Lady's Bower and Virgin's Bower is a reference to Queen Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, and cites Gerard is so called because of its habit of decking and adorning ways and hedges where people travelled. Focard also informs us that it's a plant that's become an emblem of artifice because of the practice by beggars of making false ulcers in their flesh by means of its twigs which, he adds, often become real sores. And Roy Vickery, along with many others, note of its use as a substitute tobacco for the poor or for adventurous youngsters, 
And he includes a report from 1875 from the Hertfordshire Mercury that suggests that a fire was supposed to have been caused by a boy who had been smoking a, a butt of bullbine or traveller's joy near some straw. He also includes some notes from correspondence, and one of which from East Surrey talking about the 1950s. The, the writer remembers smoking whiffy wood, using short lengths of dry traveller's joy for a smoke. He says, I can still remember the bitter and acrid taste we had to endure. But whether it's in its summer blossoming form or winter form that earned it the name of traveller's joy is not at all clear. But it's easy to see that on cold days and on cold nights like these, it gives the impression of warmth that can make the traveller feel warm. Covering the roadside hedges, sparse of leaf with its soft fleecy blanket, the colour of autumn bonfire smoke and the promise of primrose. It's as if it's hugging the precious little biosphere within the hedgerow, safe in its warm duvet embrace. And it was on a cold day that I first remember seeing it, or at least the first time I registered it, and that from then on it became part of the world that I inhabited. We were on our regular visit to see Chick, my, my dad's mum, and normally we stayed with her for the entire day and often mum and dad helping in the garden, and Wendy and I horsing around. But as we got a bit older, we also took our turn, although looking back, I don't think I was much help. Her garage was filled with apples, carefully packed in boxes, and the smell was intoxicating. A neighbour kept her car in it, and so the smell of oil and petrol and leather upholstery and apples and of sacking was a truly heady mix. But for some reason, this day, it was decided that we'd go out for a drive. It was in the long days of January or February. We were experiencing at the time an extended cold spell that, for me, seemed interminable. Snow still lay like misplaced icebergs on the abandoned countryside, in hard, crusted ridges and small, angular drifts, sculpted first by wind and then by the limpid heat of a sun. It's lying around for more, Chick said, and my heart sank, for by now I longed for warmth and greenness. And it was an expression that bore into my consciousness. And even now, if I come across a heap of snow obstreperously laying in some ditch or in the hollow of a hill, I can still hear Chick's voice and find myself repeating, You're laying around for more. And I'll look up to the sky with suspicion in my eye. I'm not even sure if... Chick actually came with us this time. But I do remember we were travelling down the Foss Way, an old Roman road, arrow straight in parts, that brooked no hill or valley. Coincidentally, it's not too far from here, and part of the Foss Way became part of my regular commute to work. 
and Dad was driving us down the fossway on a cold, brittle day of earthy browns. The fields were bare and stony. Gaunt skeleton trees erupted like brown coral from the earth. The hedges, stark, brush bristles and brown, brown even leached into the crusts of snow that waited along each side of the road. Oh, look at all that old man's beard, Mum suddenly exclaimed. It was the first time I recall hearing that name, and immediately had visions of bewhiskered gentlemen of the road, magnificently tattered and carefree. I wasn't sure what I was meant to be looking at, but did register the hedges smothered by thick woolly pillows of down. And for a long time I thought it was willow herb smoke, until I realised much later that it would have died back long ago. And that name stuck. Old Man's Beard and the impression of wispy drifts of down, veiling winter hedgerows on a drear day of stubborn snows, also stuck. And also now, that impression is indelibly linked with a minivan on the javelin straight switchback of a Roman road on a dull Warwickshire winter's day, and Mum saying, Oh, oh, just look at that old man's beard. And now, here it is again. Old man's beard, traveller's joy, by the wind. And all the other wonderful names we want to give to it. Yes, words are important. And names are important, because names are not simply labels for things. Names tell us the stories of our place within our landscapes, weaving our shared national and cultural history into the hedgerows and the fields that we live among, embedding local knowledge and lore memorialising our own individual experience and encounters with our landscape. Words, names, they are so much more about us than they are about the thing we try to name. The names we use disclose our relationships. Narratives about the ways in which we touch the earth that speak much more clearly than any physical footprint that we may leave upon the mud or soil. Clematis Vitalba, Traveller's Joy, Old Man's Beard, By the Wind. They all tell us and root us Back into the land, old man's wizard, poor man's friend, Potherwind, Robin Hood's fetter, shepherd's delight, silver bush, skipping ropes, snow in harvest, 
Tuzzy Muzzy, Willow Wind, Withy Vine, Withy Wind, Withy Wine, Wold Man's Beard. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very warm, peaceful, and restful night. Good night. Temperature outside 6.6 degrees. Inside 26 degrees. Humidity 82%. Dew point 4 degrees. Wind direction northwest. Wind strength, 7 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1019.3 falling. Cloud cover, 31%. Cloud ceiling, none. Precipitation, 0.2 millimeters. Moon phase, 97.8% waning gibbous. Day length, 8 hours 31 minutes. Sunset, 16.08. Skycasting, 739.